This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. If you've read The One Thing, you've also likely read the book Essentialism. These are two books that often are compared to each other. And in fact, when we look on social media and we see pictures of the one thing, people often take a picture of essentialism sitting right next to it. Because essentialism is a book about doing the right things. Yet here's the question. uh, And this is something that we experience with people who go on the journey of living the one thing. When you start living the one thing, you begin to understand that everything does not matter equally. You start to get clarity on what matters most. You start doing the most important things first. Then you earn the right to address everything else. When you do that, results show up and they show up fast. And as that happens, your life starts to get bigger. What people don't understand is that as your life starts to get bigger, the number of big rocks, 20% priorities that drive 80% of your, your results increases. And what happens when you get to the point that there's more 20% big rocks than you have time for? For many of us, that's when we realize we need to scale. And for many of us, that moment we perceive to be a real challenge. And that's the purpose of today's episode, is how do we change the way that we look at doing the most important things? And not assuming that just because it's important, that it's going to be hard, or that it's going to take a tremendous amount of effort. In fact, how do we ask a different question? And that question is, how can I make it easier to do what matters most? And that is what this episode is about. If essentialism is about doing the right things, then effortless is about doing it right. Today, we sit down with the author of Essentialism and his brand new book, Effortless, to talk about what his life looked like after publishing Essentialism, how his life got bigger, how it got to the point that there were so many big rocks, there was more rocks than there was time. And then tragedy struck with his daughter, forcing him to wipe the plate clean. And how he went on a journey of navigating what so many people would perceive to be hard and actually find a way to do it in what he calls an effortless state, making it easier to do what matters most. If this episode resonates with you, make sure to support him by picking up a copy of his brand new book, Effortless, anywhere that books are sold. With that, let's get into this conversation with best-selling author, Greg McEwen. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like Breakfast on the Go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month.
Welcome, everybody, to our monthly One Thing webinar. Every single month, we sit down and have a conversation with a best-selling author whose book is closely aligned to The One Thing. And this month is certainly no exception. So thanks for being here today, my friend. Jeff, that's so kind of you. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Greg, for people who have not read Essentialism before, give us a high-level 20%. Essentialism is an antidote to the problem of the undisciplined pursuit of more. Uh, the antidote is the disciplined pursuit of less but better. It's really about pursuing what's essential, eliminating what's not, and making it as easy as possible uh, to put those essential things into practice. That is essentialism. When you wrote the book, did you have any idea it would become what it became? Uh, it's just been a very humbling process to see people uh, read it and uh, you know find it to be relevant and. Uh, so, so I feel very grateful. You're grateful that anybody reads anything that you write. But what has surprised me about essentialism, the, the biggest compliment really has been how many people have said that they are, have reread it or reread it every year. Or as a, an agent in Hollywood told me, uh, oh, I'm on my 17th time of listening to it, it's, which, you know, I don't know what to make of all of that. But, but it just makes me think not, oh, I wrote a great book, but because it makes me think, oh, it's a great issue. It's a great need in the world. And people really feel the strain of just endlessly doing more and more, but not necessarily being more satisfied or feeling like they're getting to the next level in life. Yeah. I want to dive into what your life looked like after the book hit all the bestseller lists. How did your life begin to change? And what was that moment that ultimately took you on a path that led to effortless? Um, I mean... Everything changed uh, with, with essentialism. I remember going to a you know book signing, and there's you know there's a, a line out the door, three hundred people long. They ran out of books. They'd never run out of books before. Uh, yeah, I'm traveling all over the world. I'm still being highly selective in what I'm doing, far more selective than I'd been previously. Uh, but in addition to all these things that I you know highly motivated to do. Um, I'm also by this point uh, the father of four children. And so there's all those responsibilities. Um, there's there's you know there's editors and, and agents ready for the next thing, give us the next book. There's uh, it's just just a proliferation of just uh, the pattern that I've identified in essentialism, the success paradox. And I was already feeling the, the strain of that even though I wasn't writing another book, even though I wasn't, I had put on hiatus the, the class that I co-designed at Stanford, uh, wasn't creating a training company as I had, uh, you know, you're supposed to do. And, and so there's all these things, but still I felt, you know, this, you know, wow, that's a lot, still a lot. And it made me think of the, uh, the metaphor that we've all heard, the big rocks theory, uh, where the way it's supposed to work is that if you get the order of the rocks right, it it, it, it it fits. So if you get it wrong, okay, that's what the problem is you put the small sand in, then the small rocks, then the big rocks, and, and it just doesn't fit. Just geometrically, it doesn't work. But if you put the big rocks in, then the small rocks, then the sand, then it's all going to fit. And this is a metaphor for the most important things of the big rocks and so on. But I found myself saying, but yeah, but what happens if you just have too many big rocks? So actually, you have eliminated the sand. You've eliminated many of the small rocks, but you're still too many things. What do you do then? 
You, know, you mm. just say, okay, well, I'm just not going to invest in your health. I'm not going to invest in my marriage. Oh, that can wait. We've got the children now. Oh, no, we're not going to worry about one of the children. They seem to be fine. We just won't worry about them. That I mean, like, which thing do you put down? What do you not do when they're all essential? And and in the midst of that uh, challenge, frustration, uh, I then get, I'm, I'm traveling and I get a, a call from my son, by a panicked call that uh, it, he's videoing me from my wife's phone. That got my attention too. That was unusual. And as it turns out, my one of my daughters was having a, a massive tonic-clonic seizure. And that was really just the one of the key moments in the discombobulation of her health. She'd gone from the picture of health full of light and energy and animation and, and funny and physically active and on a rock climbing team and just just thriving uh, to suddenly inexplicably uh, just losing the capability of this free fall. Um, and, and we could talk more about that, but that pushed it over even further. And so it became clear to me that just even personally, I had to find more than just, well, figure out what's essential, eliminate non-essential. You still have to find the right way to do what's essential. So, so doing the right thing is one thing. Doing it in the right way is just as important. Because if you do it in the wrong way, you're still going to burn out before those most important, most essential uh, activities, relationships, goals are achieved. And if you burn out before you get there, it doesn't matter how important it is. You're still not going to get it done. And indeed, the plot thickens because as I have now worked with people uh, all over the world on trying to execute what's essential, I found that not only is it a bad idea that it, if you burn out before you get there, it's in fact the, the predominant path people take. So because they really have been taught and believe as an absolute truism, an almost natural law, that the more important a thing is, the harder it will be. Mm. So it, that's just become, that's just a dominant mindset. And I am telling you, it's everywhere. And it's stated so boldly, just like the saying, the truth. You notice it. As soon as you start getting too effortless, you will notice the next time a leader tries to inspire the troops. This thing is so important. It's going to be so hard. But man, it really matters. They just make that speech all day long. No one will ever question it. No one will ever say, well, does it have to be? And the cost of that mindset is enormous because it means that people either get going on their path to what's essential and give up because they burn out, or they don't even get going on it in the first place because they just say, well, it's just overwhelming just to even think about it. So they don't even start the journey. And 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 this is just this is just all unnecessary. So effortless is my attempt at trying to articulate what I learned personally to get through this particularly acute challenge uh, with our daughter's health uh, and 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 everything else that is so important to us. Uh, but it's also a codification of these ideas so that other people can find a way to achieve the things that matter most, but without uh, without burning out. That's the, that's the idea. 
I want to drive a few points home because it matters. Most people start before they're introduced to these ideas, putting the sand in first, then the pebbles, and then they hope to earn the right to get to the big rocks. Mm. There's never enough. Right. Then they start to go down the path. They start to implement. They start to identify what is a big rock, a 20% priority that drives 80% of my results versus everything else. And they start to do those. They experience success. They get results. Their life gets bigger. And all of a sudden, the number of big rocks increases. And you wake up to the point where you hit a ceiling of achievement because there's no more space. There are too many big rocks. And then you really have a problem. But the thing that you were talking about is it's not just, okay, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing it the right way? I personally, when when you were talking about this in the book, reflected on times when I've been leading trainings inside of companies and talking about how doing the one thing is not always the easiest thing. I'm going to stop that immediately. Yeah. Because why pose that on people versus asking a powerful question that you put in the book, how might this be easy? How might I make this easier? So I want to go and go ahead. Just you, you said it at the beginning of this conversation. I, lo- I mean, I love that you, I don't mean to call you out now. You just called yourself out. I'm not trying to, but you said it right at the beginning. It's like essentialism, you know, it's, 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 it's important, but it's so tough. You said something like that at the very beginning of this conversation. And yes. it's just like, I did it too. I, I, somebody said to me, they said, they said, uh, they read essentialism. They said, oh man, I love essentialism, but it should come with a warning. This will be the hardest thing that you will ever do. And I, st- I just, I just parroted that. I'm like, oh, that's a good line. I'm going to teach that. I taught people. That essential things are hard. Among the hardest things you will ever do. Really? Now, sometimes that's true. I'm not saying it's never true, but does it really have to be that there's only two songs? You can either sing the hard and essential song or the easy and trivial song. Is it possible there's a third alternative? Is is could we even consider that? Could we open ourselves up to that possibility? That it could make the essential things the easiest things in our lives. Well, what would happen if you if you could? That would change everything. It does change everything. So much of the things that we have witnessed shepherding people on a journey of living the one thing, it's the skill of asking bigger questions and searching for bigger answers. And bigger questions, you often hit a wall called, I don't know. What's the <laughs> yeah. one thing you can such that by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary. <laughs> I don't know. So they go check email. And they look at something that's a big rock that they perceive to be hard. And if you ask the question, how might I make this easier? My friend uh, John Berghoff said to me once, and I, I, this has really changed the way I view the power of questions. He said, the moment you ask a question, you can change somebody's future. Because it's literally like putting a new lens over their vision, putting on a new pair of glasses. The moment we ask a question, you channel their focus. And if you train your brain to actually search for the answer, it can arrive at one. But you got to give yourself the permission to search. So I'm curious for you. You go from having a phenomenally successful book. You're traveling around the world, speaking, working with people. The business is booming. You're ha- more requests are coming in for your time. You're saying no to more and more and more things. The big rocks are piling up and you get the call. Mm-hmm. Your daughter's in the hospital and you have to clear the decks. How did you go about 
identifying what the easy path was, how it could even become a us. Well, I, I just had a sort of almost, I don't want to use the wrong word here, but uh, I would say, I wanted to say vision, but I mean, just a glimpse uh, that there were two parts. Uh, that, that previously may not have been very obvious to me. I mean, it's just, you just assume that something this essential, right? It's obvious that it's essential. Nobody has to point that out. Uh, it's, it's obvious that you would be willing to rearrange any schedule, any other commitments to try and address this. Uh, but you, if you have a mindset of like the hardest things, the, the essential things, the more essential, the harder it is, then you go into it with an idea that, well, this is so important, it has to require superhuman effort. We have to do everything we possibly can. You, you'd be, it's so important. You'd be justified, as you sometimes see in these movies, uh, just don't sleep. You know, just, you're just going to read all night every possible thing to be able to find some solution, some cure. And there's a sort of heroism that a moment like this can sometimes call forth from you. And if you're not careful, see, you would burn out in so many important ways fast. And one of the first things you're going to burn out is your ability to see clearly. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you use the metaphor of putting on glasses, you know, asking questions like putting on glasses. And I, I like actually thinking about that in almost the opposite way. It's like we have, we have uh, these, these goggles on that make it hard to see what to do next. Mm. And it's so cluttered. And our job is to take them off so that this effortless state, that's the language I now use for it, the effortless state can exist. Effortless state is where you're physically rested, emotionally at peace and centered so that you can see what's important now, where you can be fully present in doing it. So what are some of the things that are on those kind of the, the, the funny goggles, right? I mean, if you're exhausted, you can't see clearly. If you're sleep deprived, then then you will you'll have foggy brain. And then we'll we'll think of how that would get in the way of being able to actually succeed at this most essential work of helping Eve get better. If you're just foggy-brained all the time, think of how cluttered your decision-making will be. Now, that's just physical clutter, but there's other forms of distortion in these goggles. Uh, There is emotional clutter and complexity. Like, think of uh, all the, you know, why us? Now, why is this happening to us? Why is it happening to Eve? This is so unfair. Uh, you could imagine all the worst case scenario. Well, what if what if we never find anything to her? She's on her way to being falling into a coma and dying. That is that is a fact, and it is also a fact that no a neurologist could give us even the beginning of a diagnosis. Every test came back in the normal range, even while her capability is day by day reducing. Um, there's a temptation to take a situation that's already hard and making it much, much harder by having emotional clutter get in the way. Mm. Uh, and, and then there's just mental clutter where you just start to read every option that everybody sends you. Everyone's well-intended sending you these, um, you know, these basically terminal illnesses that Eve might have, and they're all different kinds, and these aren't coming from doctors or you know people that are well-informed, they're just trying to help, but you could spend all night long reading all of that stuff and you get mentally cluttered and so on. And so that's the state of suffering. That cluttered state is a state of suffering. And 
this other path that you know mercifully we we became aware of and took is just the path of really removing all of that but we're still going to sleep we've got to rest why do you have to rest because we don't know how long this will take and we have to be in the best state that we can possibly be in we need to be at like let's call it like an elite level state so that we can be present, make good decisions, figure out what actually the right path is going forward. We need to, so how do we do that? What does the lighter path look like? I mean, that there, you know, yes, get the rest. Make sure you're still getting that. Uh, it, it meant there were just some questions we, we just we could not do, would not do. We're not going to ask why us, why evil. We're not going to, we're not doing that. We don't have time for that. Uh, we're not going to complain. We're going to be grateful. We're going to be thankful for every possible small thing we possibly can. And we're going to encourage everyone in the family to do it. We're going to have, we're going to still laugh together. We're going to still maintain the culture. We're still going to sing together and get around the piano and sing. And we're going to still play games and we're still going to, so that we can maintain the state necessary to be able to know what action to take and what things not to do. How many of you who are here right now know what it feels like to have so much on your plate that it's almost crippling? And how many of you know what it feels like to go through your days feeling like you're carrying or dragging this emotional anvil behind you? That was me earlier this week, by the way. And all you're suggesting, Greg, is that there's an alternative and it's pursuing an effortless state, a state where you can have clarity, a state where you can actually manage your emotions and set the ones that are not going to serve you to the side. And there's something you touched on in the book that I think is really important. And you're, you're, you're hitting it at a high level here, but I want to dive. It's the idea of rest. I'm curious for how many people here, if we actually, if we had you show your calendar right now, we would literally see it's like a game of Tetris, just fitting all the blocks together back to back to back to back to back. Greg, when you were talking about this, it hit me. That was my May. There were more big rocks than there was time. And I knew I was going to have to go out of balance for the month and that it would alleviate. But I was consciously aware of the toll it was taking on me. And you had some very tactical recommendations for how we can structure our day so that we just get that little bit of rest. Because at a high level, here's why this matters. If you work too long, too hard, not only do you get diminishing returns, it can get to a point where it actually becomes detrimental and it undermines the very success you're working so hard for. So talk to us about some of the tactical things we can do to have more rest throughout our day. Well, I mean, one of the first things I have to say about this is that we, for many overachievers... You know, especially, especially if you're part of the hit squad, as my um, my brother Justin calls it. Hit squad has you know the hardworking, intelligent, talented group of people. HIT, the hit squad. Uh, you you it's the chances are you actually don't know how to relax. You you actually don't you don't have that capability. So it's like you know how to you know how to work hard. And that's one of the reasons you keep doing it and keep trying to answer the problem by doing more of that. This is a familiar capability. And I'm not saying it's a bad capability. It's useful in its place. It's just limited. And so if you just try to say, well, I'm, if, I'm, if I want to achieve 10 extra results, I have to work 10 times as hard, you, 
that isn't what you're going to get. That's not how it's going to work out for you. You know, first, you have to say, well, relaxing is a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Relaxing is a capability. And I've got to learn how to do it. And so you might be at level zero on learning how to do this right now. And you might have to develop it bit by bit. One of the specific things that I recommend people do uh, is this list. Write down a list of the things that you can, you know, like, like it's called like building blocks of relaxation. You say, what things actually relax me? What things are recuperating for me? And my wife did this, Anna did this, and I did it. And our lists are very different. And that's part of the, that's like part of the exercise. You have to pay attention. At first, you think, I don't know what to do. Uh, but then if you start to think about, well, things I actually enjoy, and you make the list. We did it. We each did, I think, 20 things on the list. And then recently, Anna brought her list to me again, and they were they'd become much more precise. She was down to about 10 and some of them were very specific and unique to her, like signature relaxing rituals. Mm. And so now these can be built and designed into the day instead of that uncomfortable feeling that a lot of overachievers have when they say, okay, well, okay, I'm done for the day. And then they're like, well, that feels really awkward. That's awful. I don't actually enjoy it. They don't want to go on a vacation and sit somewhere on a beach because they feel like that they're, they're, they're missing out. They feel like I'm, I need to be doing more, you know, the workaholism, so on. Uh, and, and instead of that, you can start designing experiences that are ritualistic and specific for you and that you do genuinely look forward to. Um, and, and so that can make it a little tricky to, to just tell other people what they should be. It, it should be designed for, for, for them and shared with your significant other because then they can help design experiences for you. Suddenly you have somebody. You just just gave them a gift. You gave them a question, a question that they can search search for the answer to. Which this might be the lead domino for you following this interview. Which is what actually relaxes me? What are the things that relax me? And you could literally take a pen and a piece of paper and two minutes and brainstorm ideas and ask the question. Okay, based on these, what's one that I want to weave into my schedule? You know, Greg, you shared something in the book, the idea of when you look at your time blocks, the idea of having three 90-minute time blocks with just a tiny window in between, 10, 15 minutes. And when you said it, I was immediately teleported back through my calendar. And I could actually visualize the days when I was back to back to back and how taxing that was for me emotionally Mm -hmm. versus the moments when I literally had 15 minutes or less and I could just do a quick walk around the block and how getting in the sunshine for me and walking our neighborhood because it's beautiful mm-hmm. how much that like completely rejuvenates me and I come right back in and I am ready to go it's like I just had my cup, cup of coffee I don't even need it I just roll mm-hmm. I just roll this way <laughs> <laughs> and as Erickson was curious about whether the sleep um, patterns that we have at night that are well established uh, 90 minute approximately sleep cycles and we need all of us need three of these per night uh, so they're not you know they're not happening. 10 times an idle break. It's three times. And some people's are shorter than others, so they need less you know, minutes in bed. But you all need three cycles. And if you have one of them interrupted, then you're not going to feel like you've had a good night's sleep. So that's well established. But he just posed the question to his research team. He said, well, what, what if those continue through the day? Do they continue through the day? Or is it just a sleep phenomenon? Is it a human phenomenon or a sleep phenomenon? And they found that they do continue through the day. And so you have three cycles in the morning that are your optimal cycles, uh, which has has a couple of implications for designing 
a life where getting the essentials done becomes more effortless. This is this is what you're doing. You're saying 90 minutes protected to do something that's essential, something that really matters to push the needle forward. And you're protecting that time. You take the break and you do it again for another 90 minutes and then a break and another 90 minutes. This is, you know, this is your morning effectively. And it's making sure that you're prioritizing what you do in that time, protecting it, but also creating the break in between uh, a moment. Uh, I, I go sometimes play tennis with my son and sometimes we'll play a whole um, a whole set, but 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 sometimes I'll say, "Hey, listen, I've got 15 minutes. Let's, let's we can play. Uh, we can we can we can relax together. We can do something." And it's surprising to me how rejuvenative those small segments are. Um, you know, you think you'd need maybe more, but it just does me a lot of good to get outside and spend a few minutes. Uh, you know, doing something that's disconnected to to the work instead of just this perpetual flow of work we try to do. So I want I want to dive in here. You're noticing a theme. You say something smart, I dive in. <laughs> you said three 90-minute time blocks that you protect with space in between to rejuvenate yourself. And I know for a fact that all the people here, the vast majority of them, thought to themselves, whether consciously or subconsciously, that sounds nice. and I don't know how I can do that, or I can't do that, or that won't work inside my company. So walk us through the effortless mindset to actually go on a journey to to making this their reality. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very sympathetic to that problem. Uh, I mean, my general view on executing on what's essential is that if you don't have a point of view on what is essential, uh, then you will just be a function of what other people defining for you, right? If you don't prioritize your life, someone else definitely will. Uh, and so, so I think you have to have a point of view about what is important each day, what is essential. So let's say, um, so let's say this is a pattern that I, I used for years and that I haven't been doing it at all recently. And and it's it's made my days feel much more frenetic and frantic. Uh, but I, I for many years just said, okay, I'm, I have six things. What are the six things you need to do today? Approximately Three things personal and family, and three things business. And it doesn't mean you are limited, you can't do anything that's off that list, but by taking a moment, and I actually think it takes more than it's not a 10-second thing. You have to, you have to, you know, when I do it, it doesn't take a long time, but it takes me a while to really just think and pause. What is going to be satisfying by by the end of the day if I if I get these things done? So you have to have a point of view about those things. I think you all also have to have a point of view about how to use your time and so you want to be able to at least put it on your calendar you know maybe you put it on repeat so that you you at least have a placeholder for it there even if that suddenly competes is noticeably competing with other things that, that other meetings that are already scheduled that's just phase one it's like you have a point of view now you need to go and advocate for that point of view and you've got to learn how to do that in a skilled way. So it, it's, it's not enough. You can't just dictate if you're in a workplace. Uh, you know, most people are, and they're in some hierarchical structure. You can't just go to your boss or your boss's boss or even your own team, you know, your peer group. Oh, no, this is what I'm doing. Too bad. No, of course not. But, but you will, if, if you don't have a point of view, you will just become a function of them. Uh, and, and they may be very reactive in what they're doing. So you go and have a conversation. You have the courage to have 
the conversation. And in essentialism, there's a whole section on on negotiating. Uh, you know, those. You know, what what really matters. Uh, and but then I think that I think the third thing you need to have skill in is is to be able to is to make it safe for other people to have the conversation with you. Mm-hmm. So that so that you know where you have influence, and all of us have influence. If we have direct reports, you know, reporting to us, we have direct influence with them. But even with the other people around us, there are times when we are the person that could be getting in the way of somebody else's prioritization with our request. And so making it safe for other people. But for a lot of people, the most dangerous thing they do is talk uh, you know, and, and speak up. And they don't want to do it because it can be so dangerous for them in, in, in a variety of ways. So we have the obligation to make it safe. Uh, for people who want to like listen to a, a really interesting conversation about this and how to do it, um, there's a it's a free resource. It's on the my podcast, the What's Essential podcast, and it's with Banks Benitez, and it's about how they applied essentialism inside of a corporate environment with a matrixed organizations and all of these internal external customers and what did they do? And they hypothesized. They said if we learn how to apply essentialism in our world, it should be true that we can achieve 40 hours worth of outcome in 32 hours worth of work, or in other words, a four-day work week. And so they got external people to come and actually measure their output. And they had an experiment for six weeks trying to apply the ideas, got another test, you know, same external group came and tested them. Spent another six weeks applying what they'd learned from that mid-test uh, and feedback, and at the end of their three-month experiment, they concluded, "Yeah, we actually uh, we, this is for real." And they've moved now official policy for their whole company to a four-day work week. Here's the key part of the whole thing, and why I'm sharing it at this juncture is that the price they paid for this, the thing they needed to change, was to have the conversation around prioritization. Mm-hmm. And that's news because what that means is that before, the prioritization conversation was missing. And that's what I have found in the years since writing Essentialism is that in, in, in corporations, in day-to-day work, people are not talking about what is the priority today. So it's not that people don't conceptually understand what prioritization is, is that they do not have the conversation either because of cultural norm or because of a lack of skill or both. It's just missing. So every so often you do some offsite, maybe, okay, well, here are sort of five, six, seven things we're going to try and focus on, and these are big initiatives. And, and then day to day, it's just like a free-for-all. It's just there's people living in their inbox, and it's just messy, and you just keep requesting and keep pushing, and I'll just keep nudging you, and you keep nudging me. We've got no idea what's actually essential. So what they did in their company is that they had to have those conversations. That's the only way you could get more done in less time. And so they would go to each other and they would say, even the CEO would say, okay, here's what I think is really important. I'd like you to do this today. And people, someone would say, he would, he would say, but what are you working on? What's the priority for you today? What is, what, what? And they would say, well, this is what is the priority for me. See, they've done the internal work. They come to it with an answer. And and sometimes he said 40% of the time they concluded that what the CEO said actually was more important, and that's what they did. But 60% of the time they say, actually, what you're doing is more important than what I thought. So you just carry on with what you're doing. And that I want give to- and take, 
that is that is key. Go ahead. I want to give some language to this because people will go, okay, I want to have the conversation, but how do I? I just interviewed one of our clients after completing a year's worth of working together and we're looking at the next three years. And when I asked what was what were the successes we had, the CEO said to me, the number one success that I think we accomplished in the last year was that the chairman of the board no longer assumes that people are just available when his staff calls. <clears throat> now when staff calls, they ask, are you in, are you in a time block? And acknowledge that just because the chairman has a priority in the moment doesn't mean that it actually is the most important priority. And for very common language for you, but I love how you said it starts by you giving the permission. If you are a leader of people, I promise you, you are the you are the, the one of the biggest problems. Um, mm-hmm. And I say that with love and grace. And here's a solution. I say this with my team. When I ask them to do something, I say, or I ask, help me understand what I might be asking you to say no to so that you can say yes to this. And that works laterally and it works up the chain because it acknowledges... Say it again so people people can hear that. Greg, um, I I need you to pull this report for me today. What I'm not clear on is what I might be asking you to say no to so you can say yes to this. Help me understand so I make sure you're acting in order of priority. Yeah. What am I asking you to say no to in order to say yes to this? That's really good because we live in the the norm is to believe that there's no trade-offs. It's like each request is evaluated only against itself. So the problem with that is that you is that you're really saying, well, is this if this is a good thing, then you sign up for it. It's a good thing. But because we don't live in a trade-off-free world, we live in exactly the opposite, where everything is a trade-off. Absolutely every yes is a no. And actually, every yes is a no to many things. It's many no's. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so once you say it, then you get to have a, you know, then it's an honest conversation. What are we saying no to in order to say yes to this? Uh, and 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 often you find oh no that if you're saying no to that I actually would much prefer you go right back to what you were doing that's more important than my shiny new object in this moment oh I have something about this um, okay this is Eve the one that um, when I was talking about before this is before she got sick but but she was um, I was trying to persuade her to read this particular book in this day like just just like hey listen just just do this and. It's like, I like the manager, shiny new object. Uh, So she's pushing back, but not rudely. And then I come back to the office and she slips a note under my door that that, that, uh, I was sharing this. Somebody laminated it so I'd never lose this. This is the actual note, though. It says, she wrote, I already expressed my unwillingness to read this book, but I'm willing to make a counteroffer. I am not willing to read it all in one day today, but I'd be happy to explore the possibility of reading it in the future over the course of a few weeks. I believe it would be best to wait till the end of my literature assignment. If you would like me to read this book in place of a separate assignment and over the course of a few weeks, I'm sure that can be made possible. Dude, I feel like you just described my daughter in 10 years. I'm so in trouble. <laughs> well, I 
I loved it because it to me it shows this this idea that you that you need to be able to not it's not the polite yes and the rude no it's the polite no it's the negotiated yes it's the it's, and in fact I heard it said this, this way recently it's like it's like in life you can either be um, and I hope it's not too provocative to say it this way like you can either be a slave to someone or you can be like the tyrant or you can negotiate. And in a sense, those are always your three options. It's like, it's like, which means that for healthy relationships, you must be in the mode of negotiation. That's the, that's the, the healthy give and take that requires, that is needed for relationships to exist in a healthy way long term. She was stepping into that. I was unintentionally stepping into, look, just do this. This, this, this is the answer for you. But guessing that she has a whole you know, that she has a whole set of commitments already. And she showed that, you know, how you can advocate for yourself. Uh, if I was doing it better, I would have been able to advocate for her. You know, but here's this book. But what are you saying no to if you do this? Yeah. Um, I made a commitment to you that I would manage the clock. So we have T minus five minutes. So we, we need to land this plane. I want to, for people who want to begin the journey of pursuing the effortless path. What's the one thing they can do to start? Yeah, what's the one thing someone can do to make everything effortless? It sounds like I've heard that before. Um, <laughs> actually, I By was way, thinking about this. I think there's an easier way to ask that question. I've been, I've been thinking about this myself. That, that really, if you, what's the whole question? Give me context. What's the question as is worded in the one thing? What's the one thing you can do? Such that by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary. Right. It's a great question. But it's also quite a lot of words. It is a lot of words. I was thinking recently, I hope that that sounds sounds very presumptuous to say this, but I was like, what's the easiest way to say that? And I was thinking, well, you could just say, well, what's the one thing that makes everything effortless? Or everything else effortless? Couldn't you say it like that? I mean, we could really get into it. There's a lot behind it because it's one thing, not two things. And it's one thing you can do because a lot of people will come up with a, a, a <laughs> list of things that they should do or feel like they ought to be able to do, but it's not a yeah. that they can. I like that. Such that's the one thing you can like do. Doing it, meaning I walk the talk. I don't just... Because the dominoes are lined up, everything else is easier or unnecessary because it's not always going to be effortless. Easier or unnecessary. Yeah. So you could say... What's the one thing you can do that makes everything easier? But there are some things you can do. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. I know you've thought about this so much more than me. No, no, I'm not knocking it at all. You've taught it, you've broken it down, you've thought about every word in that phrase so many. How many times have you asked that question in your life? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're thousands, you're thousands in. Uh, okay, the, the the one thing, the one thing that somebody can do to get on the journey of effortless. All right, I've got it. Uh, I would just, and it is simple, similar to what we're on right now. It sounds so simple, it could be ignored because we've often been taught to distrust the easy and simple. Uh, but but really, it's it's to always. It's to invert, always invert. And I'll give you a question that goes with this. Uh, and, and that is, 
All right, now here's I've got I've got. I'm going to share one small story and one question to go with it. So it's not in effortless. It's, it got edited out of effortless. I was the one that edited it out, and I kind of regret that. But it's a story that I came across in the research of a woman who is with her dying son at the end of his life, and she's in the hospital with him, and she gets up into into the bed with him just to be close to him, and then right at that end point when he's still in the here, he's, he's, but he's not fully here and he's not fully there yet. He's in the in between. He suddenly just opens his eyes and he says, "Oh mom, it's all so simple. It's all so simple." And those are his last words. He after that he dies, and that becomes this soundtrack, this mantra for you know for the rest of her life and for us if we're willing to learn it. It's all so simple. And the question that goes with it is. Is just to, to ask, how am I making what's essential harder than it needs to be? Mm. And and that to me is is like just start there. Because you will find things, you will find ways you're just you're adding all sorts of unnecessary complexity. You're just you you're bringing all sorts of unnecessary emotions or something, or you and then you'll have what's very powerful because you'll know what to do next. And what we do next matters most. I thought you were going to go that direction. I thought you were going to ask the question. I'm, I'm flipping what you said, but how can I make it easier to do what matters most? Bottom line is asking, your answer is you ask a question. You ask a yeah. question that takes you down a path to explore the easier path. Greg, where can people learn more about you? Get your book. Yeah, look, Effortless is, uh, is everywhere that there are books. I think, still, I think there's still a deal where where if you if you order effortless, you can also get the 21 day essentialism challenge for free. I think the publisher still has that, uh, but people can check that out at essentialism.com. We're just building a, a new academy, and uh, and I think those are you know those are the places. Maybe, maybe uh, you can listen to the audio book if you'd like this conversation. The audio book seems to be resonating for people. And, uh, those are plenty. You do have a silky voice. It does a work. Silky out. voice. Well, for good oil, <laughs> I read it. I don't know. I don't know that it was a good thing, but uh, but 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 I, I I read it and I was happy to do it. There you go, my friend. Well, I promised you we'd be done by this time. So thank you so much for investing the time with us. And for everybody, make sure to pick up a copy of Effortless anywhere books are sto- are sold. Um, I chose to listen to it and absolutely loved it. So Greg, thank you, my friend. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, everyone. Well, there you have it, our conversation with Greg McEwen, best-selling author of Essentialism and his brand new book, Effortless. I love this book. And the reason for that is it teaches us how to ask powerful questions to change the way that we perceive the path ahead. Looking at the most important things and not automatically assuming that it's going to have to be hard, but asking a powerful question, how can I make it easier to do what matters most? and search for that answer. This really served me this week. Personally, I had a a pretty challenging week this week. And when we talk about the emotional toll that can fog up your goggles and make it hard to see straight, I had that happen this week. And there was a moment where I grabbed my pen and paper and I asked the question, how can I make it easier to do what matters most? And I gave myself permission to search for the answer. And I found it and I pursued that path. 
it allowed me to take a lot of emotions that wouldn't serve me and simply set them aside instead of carry them around. Had I chosen to continue carrying them, no doubt, I would have carried them straight into my marriage. I would have carried them straight into my relationship with my kids. And I would not have shown up as the best husband or father. And that's just not a cost I'm willing to pay. Not if I can help it. Where in your life might you be making it harder to do what matters most? And how can you start asking yourself the question, how can I make it easier to do what matters most? For those of you who are leaders inside of organizations, man, he and I could have gone for another hour about how inside of companies, people aren't actually clear on what the priority is and creating that common language. And this is something that I am just tremendously passionate about because so much of my time is invested working inside of companies with our team to help them shift the culture where they get clear on what matters most. They create the common language. You heard me say it here so that people feel comfortable to speak up with their leaders. And the results are extraordinary as a result. We would love to engage with you. If that's something you're curious about learning more about, just head on over to theonething.com. On the training page, we have a section around our, our business offerings. We would love to engage with you and walk you through what that looks like. If this episode has brought value to you, please think of somebody who you know needs to hear this. And if you are that person, welcome to The One Thing Podcast. Subscribe to the show so all future episodes are automatically downloaded to your device of choice. If you would leave us a review for this specific episode, on your podcast player of choice. We love to get your feedback. And it also genuinely helps us reach more people, which allows us to fulfill our mission, which is to help you better invest your time so you can achieve extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. We look forward to being with you in the next episode.